Blog Talk Radio. Okay, this is going to be a little different. We're going to start the show without any music this today. Um, we are going to get right into this. Our special guest today is Anthony DeCurtis. This is part two of an interview that we are doing regarding his newest book that he just released, Lou Reed, A Life. So this is Lou Reed, A Life, part two, and we have some special guests that are calling in today that are going to be um, talking with all of us. And if you'd like to tune in, you may do so. And also, I'm going to open the chat room in one second, and you can also call in if you have any questions. The number to call in is 347-677-1036. And I have my special guest um, co-host, um, Spencer Drake, on the line as well. And um, we are going to get right into this. So I'm going to bring everyone into the studio. I believe I've got Anthony and I've got um, Bill and Jeff and Spencer bringing hey. everybody in. Hey, guys. Okay. Hey, hi. This is Bill. Hey. Hey. Hello. Yeah, this is gonna be Hello. this is gonna be super fun. Um, I apologize. I, I planned on opening up with Dirty Boulevard, which is the song that um Spencer really resonates with and wanted me to play, and then I was gonna end with Sweet Jane. We'll see during the show if uh that comes up. But meanwhile, Anthony, welcome back to the show. Oh, my pleasure. Oh. Thank you for having me. And uh you know, we Spencer and I both felt like your newest book, which, by the way, um, is available right now on Amazon and pretty much anywhere where you can get the book. Um, it is a really cool um, book about detailed situations and things about Lou Reed and his life and all the different aspects that go into it. And there were a lot of different people that you interviewed and that were involved in it. And today we have Three people, Spencer and uh, Bill and Jeff. Are you there? I am here. Yeah. Oh, cool. So we have both Bill, Jeff, Spencer, and um, they are all in the book. And uh, I'm probably the only one that's not on the book, and I'm the one here. But <laughs> it's all good. I was there. I was there in spirit. So you know what, Anthony? I know that you live such a colorful life besides writing beautiful <laughs> books and also a contributing editor for Rolling Stone magazine. Um, I know that um, you uh, can go ahead and I would love for you to go ahead and tell everyone a little bit more about yourself and your music career and then how you started writing this book and where we left off and then bring Bill and Jeff and Spencer into this. Um, sure. Yeah. Well, getting into, I mean, uh, I don't know, you know, <laughs> how I started writing about music. It was a long time ago. I mean, it was really um, the late 70s, early 80s when I got my start. I was in uh, graduate school in, uh, I'm from New York City originally, and I was in graduate school at, in Bloomington, Indiana, and uh, you know just started writing about music there. Uh, and uh, I, while I was you know in Bloomington, I, I wrote a weekly record review column and did overnight reviews for uh, the Bloomington Daily newspaper, the one in the city, not like the school newspaper, and got some experience that way. And then um, I moved to Atlanta actually to teach at Emory University. And started 
doing some writing down there. Uh, and that's where I did my first piece for Rolling Stone in 1980, which was a live review of the B-52s, whom I was quite excited about. And they were from Georgia. And the whole Georgia scene was really exciting back then, you know, with REM and Pylon and the B-52s. And, uh, you know, REM in particular, a band very much influenced by Lou Reed. And, you know, some of their covers of Lou Reed songs, like they did uh, There She Goes Again and Pale Blue Eyes, uh, were part of a kind of revival of interest in Lou and the Velvet Underground uh, during that period that, um, you know, when the Velvet Underground records were really hard to find. Um, you know, I got to know Lou when I moved to New York. I was working at Rolling Stone and um, and later at VH1. I was actually working at VH1 for a year, uh, which was terrible. I hated it, but uh, nonetheless, uh, before I quit, uh, one of the high points was meeting Lou Reed. And, uh, you know, we kind of hit it off. I'd written about him. He had seen stuff I'd written about him in Rolling Stone. And um, we had a very nice conversation during a three-hour layover in Cleveland uh, after the opening of the Rock and Roll Hall of, uh, Hall of Fame in Cleveland. Lou had played there with um, – they did a, a big concert celebrating that opening. Lou played there with Soul Asylum. And we kind of got to know each other. And, um, you know, and then after that, uh, you know, there were any number of times, you know, a half dozen times or so that I did interviews with him, you know, a million times, saw him around the city. And, you know, we, I think, uh, you know, I think Lou liked and trusted me, and uh, I certainly always uh, held him in great esteem. And uh, uh, I think, you know, if, you know, in my own estimation, I mean, I feel the book reflects that, that sense of, um, regard for Lou as an artist and also kind of affection for him as a person, you know, like everyone, you know, who's very three-dimensional and, um, you know, had all kinds of aspects. But I, I think in presenting him, uh, you know, it, in those three-dimensional terms, I think that um, both the quality of his work and the quality of him as a person, uh, I, I really worked hard to try to make sure those came through. Hmm. You do. Yeah, and I, I and your music um, is pretty pretty cool that you're doing yourself. I I know Spencer was just recently at uh, one of your gigs. Um, I don't remember which venue that was. Where was that? Um, that was was that um, at uh, 92Y, Anthony? Oh yeah, the 92nd Street Y. I didn't make. Uh, <laughs> hadn't really sung in public in many many years, but. Uh, Jeff Ross and, and Suzanne Vega and Richard Barham were all very uh, indulgent of me. I you know, sang a verse of I'm Waiting for the Man, and uh, it was, it was uh, and then background on some other stuff, and we were like a little band for an evening, and it was uh, one of the <laughs> great, great thrills, I must say, of my entire we, life. We can reprise so that fun. anytime you like, Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> so well, Richard and I are going to be down in Philadelphia next week, man. That's uh, right. At uh, the World Cafe Live, and um, I'm gonna gonna reprise my singing uh, performance <laughs> going out on the road. But it was, uh, yeah, that was one aspect that was really a kind of nice touch. I mean, I think Lou is a wonderful singer, but you know, I think I could sing in Lou's range. <laughs> I could manage that, <laughs> and uh, you know, I yeah. think you know, for an evening to be up there, especially with you know musicians and singers of 
you know, the quality of Jeff and Suzanne Vega and Richard Barone was really um, a major thrill for me. That's awesome. I think it was an exciting um, night. If I may jump in, this Jeff, I, 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 I think that was one yeah, of the more yeah, exciting so things I've had in in many, many, many years. It just, it was such a wonderful night. And, Jeffrey, uh, um, I was there at the event, and you brought up something that was very interesting about the the part of your life with Lou and how kind of crazy that was, right? Uh, why don't you talk about that? <laughs> there you go. Oh, yeah. Here we go. Um, yeah, actually, during that during during uh, uh, that presentation, uh, Anthony managed to extract a few anecdotes that uh, that didn't make it into the book, um, but. I, it was just a, a wild time in rock and roll, period. Um, and certainly uh, in, a, in an age when things were moving much more slowly than they are now, things were moving very quickly in the underground in New York. It was, uh, it was quite whirlwind, and I, I got drawn into that by Lou, um, you know, sort of sucked up into the, <laughs> into the center of that tornado, and... Um, yeah, I mean, I remember things. They're all a bit mixed together, as you can imagine. Cows and pieces of furniture and farm, <laughs> what? farm equipment all swirling around up there. But, um, Tell me about that. Uh, sorry, sorry, Holly? Tell me about that. <laughs> well, uh, let me paint you a picture. I was, I was very young when I joined the Lou Reed Band. I was 22 uh, when Lou tapped me to play lead guitar for him, and he was an extremely old 36. I, I just I couldn't uh-huh. wrap my head around it. <laughs> Anybody be that old, you know? And um, but I learned. I learned quickly. And uh, Lou was really he was a, a, a bit all pervasive. It was all Lou uh-huh. all the time. Uh, and he had a lot of guidance. It was sort of insta guidance. Whatever you were doing, he had a an idea how you could do it better, and often he was right, um, but he had no filters, and um, so uh, yeah, a lot, a lot of, a lot of what I picked up from Lou at you know at that young age over the course of the year and a half that uh, that I spent with him um, took many, many, many more years to get a grip on. Um, for all that we think about Lou uh, being, you know, uh, a bit. Dionysian and and uh, uh, um, yeah, uh, extreme. Um, he didn't tolerate that behavior from the people around him, so uh, I was required to behave well while Lou got to be Lou. Oh wow! <laughs> Are you serious? That is so. No, I mean, I I recall the band that I was with, which had uh, Bruce Yaw and Marty Fogel on sax and and uh, Mike Sikorsky on drums, and of course Mike Fonseca was who was with Lou for years uh, on keyboards. Uh, yeah, the guys were, were, I mean, really straight. This was a pretty straight-laced kind of serious jazz musician band that I joined. Um, I was diametrically opposed to uh, their personalities, I'm, I'm sure. But, um, yeah, I mean, Lou was, Lou, Lou was a very serious musician in, uh, in every respect. Um, so we, we all behaved. As much as we could. How did you How did you meet Lou? How did you two meet? Uh, I met Lou at the uh, BMF office. Uh, Johnny Podell was managing him at the time, and he was uh, Lou had uh, just signed with Arista, 
and had uh, mm-hmm. recorded the Roll Heart album, and was out on a out on a, a, a the American tour, which preceded what I refer. We always we, we, I, I have this this conversation always. The nomenclature is weird for me. The Street Hassle tour was the tour that we recorded that and Take No Prisoners on. Which, by the way, Anthony, I found uh, out recent. I found out recently in review of that album that I'm on that one too. Oh, there you <laughs> oh, go. Wow. Very good. I have, to, I have to keep that in mind and future <laughs> references. I, I'm like you know I'm finding out more and more and more all the time. Forty this years later, so. so cool. um, yeah, I was at the BMF office, and, and uh, uh, they basically sent me out. Um, I have alternative opinions of this. Uh, to be a guitar tech, uh, because I was friends with Mick Rock, uh, because uh, Lou needed some <laughs> some entertainment, I, I don't know. But I spent a few weeks on the road with him, and then when he came back a month or so later, uh, we started playing together, and uh, he just called me up and invited me to dinner and said, hey, Join the yeah, band. That's, and, that's um, so cool. Uh, so, that's that's see, great. In one version of this, you know, it's a roadie success story, but I wasn't actually a roadie. Uh, I just I just like the way that no, sounds. But, <laughs> but you know what really is great about all this? Both yourself, Spencer, Anthony, and Bill, all of you are such great. You all have such great, upbeat personalities and are very articulate and know what you want to do and everything. And I know Lou is a lot like that. He either liked it or didn't like it from what I heard from the first interview that we did from Sylvia. Um, And with the uh, album design that Spencer worked on. So I I know that you guys just all sound like such great guys, really, seriously. (laughs) Anthony, this must have been such a fun book to do. Oh, it's such a shame. No, Anthony. You did great with this. How did you find everybody, and how did everybody come together to do this with you? That's on the air. Well, there was a lot of interest. You know, there was. um, Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, one of the things I was really struck by, and I don't think anyone would have been more surprised than Lou. uh, But -hmm. after he died, what a tremendous outpouring of um, kind of emotion and feeling about him. (laughs) Oh yeah. I think that like he. you know, I think he had achieved a certain stature, but you know the the degree to which um, people reacted to his death was something that um, I think he would have been uh, quite struck by. Because in a lot of ways, I feel like toward the end of his life, um, you know, he was kind of searching for you know directions, and I think wondering what his standing was in this you know, new mm-hmm. world that was taking shape musically. And so to the extent that, um, you know, so many artists and so many fans held him in such high regard, I think would have been, um, you know, very, very uh, affecting for him. Right. And, you know, it made it, um, you know, that was why, uh, you know, one of the reasons why, you know, I, I took on doing the book you know, Lou would not have wanted any books written about him. I mean, I think there were so many aspects of his life that, you know, he had complicated feelings about. But I sort of, I felt that, you know, so many of the particularly literary figures, I think, that Lou admired um, had, you know, major biographies done of them. And, you know, someone like Delmore Schwartz, for example, had a, a very 
great biography done of him by uh, a guy named James Atlas, who is a, you know, a very good critic and a very smart guy and an excellent writer. And I, I sort of had James Atlas's biography of Delmore Schwartz in mind. I mean, Delmore was, was Lou Reed's teacher. He was a great poet. Um, you know, was an esteemed literary figure in his own right. And uh, I felt that, you know, Lou deserved that kind of book. And so, you know, a lot of people like, you know, the folks that we've got on the phone and and, and any number of other people, you know, just, I think, uh, wanted to, you know, have a context in which they could, uh, you know, speak uh, about Lou and and what he meant to them and also, uh, you know, had some sense uh, that you know, I would be a person that you know could, uh, or would, um, you know, you know, fully represent their views. You know, and uh, you know that was mm-hmm. the job. I mean, to really make people feel like, um, you know, they were in a comfortable environment and could you know speak honestly with me about, wow. you know, uh, their feelings about Lou and what what he meant to them. Hey, but, hey you know, Bill it's interesting. Uh, this, this is yeah, this is Bill. What was really great about Lou, and, and I think people realize this but maybe not like completely is that what a great teacher he was when you spend a lot of time around him he was always sort of passing on not this philosophy but just the way he dealt with the world i met him in 88 when he turned in the new york album for sire and i became his publicist and i've been lucky because in austin during the 70s my best friend and bandmate was sterling morrison so uh oh really sterling oh wow Sterling's, sterling's memory of everything. Every, he still had his IOUs to Max's Kansas City. He had everything from the Velvet wow. and remembered everything. Are you in the, kidding? In the night, Are you the kidding? night I met Lou, I went to a studio in New wow. York, and I'd written him a letter, you know, saying how much I liked his music, and I was very excited to be his publicist. So I walk in the studio in New York. I was going to do an interview with him for the, the label, and he just looks at me, doesn't say hello, and goes, come with me. And, you know, I knew the legend, and I thought, like, oh, my God, what have I done? So we go into this little room, and he, he, looks at, he, he looks at me, you know, with that Lou stare, no no real emotion in it, kind of a, that dead look he could give me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's get one thing straight. Sterling remembers everything, and I remember nothing. And I got Lou perfectly <laughs> clear, because he didn't want to go back and talk about the old days. But as I got to know him well, and he came to trust me, he told me so much about, you know, his childhood and everything he'd done. And, you know, he'd be in situations with labels that didn't work out. I mean, when he turned in the Raven record, he was convinced he, did, he didn't want Sire to put it out. And I talked him into it because I said, look, Lou, it'll just sit in the vault for years, and someday this record will be taught in college. And he goes like, no, no, the label won't do anything. And guess what? He was right. The label just completely just didn't have a clue what to do with that record. And it died a very painful death, and and one day he pulled me aside. He said, Billy, he called me Billy B. He said, Billy B., remember one thing. You can't tell anybody anything. <laughs> oh, wow. That's right. That's, a That's amazing. Bill, I want to bring up something. Bill, Bill uh, oh, wait, Bentley wait. signed. Go ahead. Bill Bentley signed Joseph Arthur. When you're done. Holly, can I, uh, I just want to come in here. Bill, no, Bill it's Bentley, fine. There's a little Bill, cut out. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Bill Bentley signed okay. Joseph Arthur for his famous Lou album. We had that on our show. Tell us about that, Bill, because mm-hmm. that's a beautiful album that Joseph Arthur did. Well, you know, when Lou died, I just it completely tore me up because he and I were talking about doing an album of covers uh, that of songs that I knew he loved, written by other people, right up until the month before he died when his 
you know, really he just couldn't sing anymore in a, in a powerful way. So Lou died, and all of us who loved him, you know, everyone on this call and all around the world, you know, we were just, it was really, we were torn up. You know, I thought his liver transplant had taken, and he was going to be okay. So he died pretty suddenly, really. And I started calling artists, saying, let's do a tribute record to Lou. Let's, you know, you want to record a Lou song. And without naming any names, it was amazing how many people weren't interested in doing that. Because Lou, wow. you know, Lou was a volatile guy, and some people had some memories they just didn't want to uh, wow. go back to. So, And then I, uh, a lady that booked The Tonight Show, Barbara Liba, said, well, you know, Joseph Arthur is a huge Lou fan. And I didn't know Joseph, so I called him up and said, Joseph, would you record an album? of all Lou Reed's songs, and he said, I'll do it tomorrow. And he did it. He did it in like two days. He just sat down and recorded those songs for that album. And we put it out, you know, pretty quickly. Some people sort of busted me, well, why'd you do that so fast? And I go, you know, I had to. I just love Lou so much. I had to do something. Yeah, absolutely. You know what? It was a great expression. It was was something I think people wanted, yeah. Yeah. I mean, to this day, there hasn't been a Lou tribute record, which confuses me. Bill, i got to tell you a story. Uh, I brought Sylvia to meet Joseph Arthur at City Winery, and he was covering that album, and oh. um, and he played all these songs, right? And I said to Sylvia, you know, he hasn't played Pale Blue Eyes. Now, you won't believe this, but then the next song he plays is Pale Blue Eyes, and Sylvia literally cried at my table wow. during that recording. And, you know, when he recorded that song, there were too many songs for the record, and with we thought we were going to have to leave Pale Blue Eyes off as a bonus track, and I just, I just said absolutely not. You know, we'll just make it a longer album, and thank God we did because I, I not only think that's one of the greatest songs anyone has ever written, right? And I, I just, I just right. feel like Joseph Virgin, plus Joseph Virgin, he slowed down uh, and really kind of uh, made less complicated "Walk on the Wild Side" in a beautiful version, and David Letterman put him on his show to sing that song, and, and uh, Joseph was at the piano and sang it with. Mike Mills from R.E.M. on bass and Peter Buck on guitar. Mm. They flew in on their own nickel to play that mm. song with Joseph for Lou Reed. Wow. And at the oh, very end, I'll never, I'll never forget, David Letterman walked over and said, and looked at Joseph and said, good night, Joseph. And he just looked at the camera and said, good night, Lou. And, the, you know, yeah. it made me cry. Wow. It wow. made me cry. And guess what? That was the night, wow. that was the night during rehearsals that, David Letterman announced he was quitting the show. <laughs> wow, so that, was, that was a heavy-duty night, man. But it was now, so beautiful. Je- Joseph would would call me up and tell me, you know, I was very close. I still am close with Joseph. He'd call me up and say, "Spence, uh, I'm going over to Lou's house," or "I just was at Lou's house and I played at his birthday," or things like that. He was very close with, and I oh, remember going to City Winery uh, one time. When Joseph was playing, and I, I just ran into Lou going backstage. You know, we said hello to each other. But you know what I mean? They had a big camaraderie, Joseph and Lou, uh, in private That's great. Life. Yeah. That's great. Let me tell you one last quick yeah, story know. about Joseph and Lou. Just real quickly, yeah. because it'll show you the kind of man Lou Reed was. Joseph, you know, as we all have, has had you know, various issues with self-destructive behavior. You know, it's just a common fact. And uh, at one point, he kind of he and Lou had been very close, and Joseph kind of went out and left field and Lou called Joseph up. I think Joseph said he was in Paris, but Lou got him and said, Joe, don't throw it all away. And Joseph wow. you know, Joseph Good said that just him. like went bang, you know, I'm gonna get straight again. Right. Uh, right. If Lou tells you to get straight, you get straight. That's right. Yeah, you know, I had a question for you, um, Bill, real quick, that um 
is not about Joseph, but about um, uh, were you with uh, working with uh, Lou during the years when he recorded the Sweet Jane with Dick Wagner, the guitar solo on that one song? Is everybody there? Nope. Hello. Did I lose everyone? Hello. No, no. Oh yeah, uh, it's Jeff. I mean, I, it, uh, I think Bill, you said you you were with him in the '80s, and that was that predates me. I think that record was done in '75. Anthony, you? Yeah, '74, '75, along in there. Uh, I was the next guitar so it was, player. It was, uh, it was it was much earlier. Yeah, I was the next guitar player on that American tour. He didn't have anybody uh, playing guitar, and he played his own guitar. And then, uh, and then I joined the band, and of course was expected to be Dick. <laughs> I'm sorry, yeah, that's right. a good luck. Air Wagner. It was Anthony. You remember one of the comments from Lou was uh, was about uh, 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 one of my guitars. Took took a guitar away from me once. He said, "You play too many notes on this one." And I thought to myself, trying to be both guys, Lou. Um, I just wanted to say something about uh, uh, when Bill, when you said uh, you were surprised at how many people did not want to uh, cover Lou's songs. And it's funny, and and, and Anthony and I discussed this at length, and I've, you know, uh, uh, lived with this for many, many years. Lou and I did not have um, a, a, a happy parting. Um, and uh, there was some ill will for, for quite a while and bad feelings long afterwards, and I had refused to play Lou Reed songs um, <laughs> up until and uh, I played an event with Mike Mills, <laughs> and uh, um, Mike and, uh, and, uh, um, and Mike Stipe, and they, um, and they asked me if I would do Pale Blue Eyes with them, wow. and... I kind of bit down and uh, and and played it with them, and really it was a wonderful experience. That just as you say, Mike Mills is such yeah. a, he's just such a gentle soul. Really, I mean, I don't know yeah. him well, I, I, but I, I I really found him to be easygoing and gentle, and 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 so forth. And um, and it was years again before I actually started playing Lou's songs again. Um, it was. Just around, I think it was just when when Lou died that I I, I finally wrapped yeah. my head around, you know, all the emotions and was able to then process and play Lou's songs, as I hope would make him proud, you know. We yes. did, we did a couple yes. together, didn't we, Anthony? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we, <laughs> and now uh, they've become we more a- of a staple in my in my uh, in my catalog. There's, yeah, um, in my whole, whole whole career in the music business, you know, people say, "Well, who who do you think is your, the most astounding artist you've worked with, or even that you 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 love?" And I always put Lou at the very top. I go album for album and year for year. I think Lou put out the greatest recordings of any artist. You know, starting with the first Velvet record, and then wow. all through his solo career. You know, like you can go through the McCartney years or the Lennon years or any great artist from this. We won't talk about Mick Jagger, but who else equaled just the, the quality control that Lou had? He had very few bad albums. There was always like three or four incredible songs on those albums. That's right. Well, so, not only and that, yet no record company knew what to do with them, ever. Well, well but, you know what? I'll, I'll tell you a little secret. Lou had a way, like when he signed to Warner's, the whole label loved him. We had dinners at people's houses. By the next record, 
you know, Lou had kind of stepped on a lot of toes with people because we all know how direct he was. And <laughs> people, just, people just didn't want to deal with him. You know, he got their home numbers and would call them at home. And oh, people, got, I, we, yeah, we talked you, about – You got uh, it in your uh, book. Yeah, and we talked, Anthony, uh, we talked about uh, some, of, some of the wilder things that Lou did when we were on the road together, like, you know, pulling out a switchblade that he'd recently purchased and holding it up to the knife. <laughs> uh, yeah, was, rep. You know, that kind of thing. It's just, um, it, yeah. Lou was Lou. Like you, know, you, kinda, you took Lou. He did. And he, and he wasn't afraid of anybody. He was fearless in that, you know, even before I, I, the Tai Chi I, I death moves. Theory, Bill, to, and I don't know, I'd like to know what you think, but I expressed a theory to Anthony. That, now, remember, I, I go way back with Lou, so we were all a bit younger. 36, yeah. not as old as I thought at 22. And, uh, and my feeling was that Lou vacillated between I'm Lou Reed, damn it, and what the hell does everybody want from me? I mean, yeah. I... I, I, I you know, I mean, I really felt, in yeah. retrospect, that's, that's an imprint that I have from, now, mind you, these are the, you know, these are early years, but, you know, I mean, if I had to, you know, offer a pop psychological explanation for some of the, you know, the, the wild swings, that would be mine. That would be my version. Yes, I think, mm-hmm. I think you're right. And plus, there's a lot of things he didn't remember, so he would feel vulnerable around people who did remember them and he didn't. And he always mm-hmm. felt like, well, you know, they know stuff about me that I can't even remember, so I'm just going to cut them off at the knees. <laughs> oh, he was wow. You know, unfortunately, a lot of us, I mean, I, I, I belong to that group of people. There's just a tremendous amount of wow. and I suffered from this. And I've done a few other, a few other bios, and, and, and a lot of it is in, in a discussion that things come back, but there's a lot that I just don't remember. And yeah. I, I'm not mm-hmm. sure whether it was that things were happening so quickly or that we weren't focused on the same things or it was our, here we go with air quotes, behavior, you know. But, right. um, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's tough when other people know things about you or people yeah. are, 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 have intimate memories of you and you're like, um, I remember your name maybe, but I, I'm not sure. That's well, I, like mean, we well was I think myself, um, you know, that Lou, once he got clean, um, and had, you know, Lou always had a great fondness for control. And I think thinking back to a lot of things that he did and, you know, stuff that people, you know, could produce that he did and uh, things that he said, I think he was embarrassed by a lot of it. I think he yeah. really felt, you know, that that he the feelings that would come up in him when uh, when he would encounter those things you know, uh, because, you know, things he had said when he was high or things that he did, mm-hmm. you know, under certain circumstances, I think that troubled him. And I, and I don't think he liked dealing with it. And that, I think, is another reason why that stuff kind of got shut down very quickly. That when whole people blackout phase, you mean? Like a blackout well, phase? Yeah, and I mean, you know, also just, mm-hmm. you know, I think it looked, he didn't like the, you know, for someone who values control as much as he did to have been in so many, I mean, look, I mean, there's no secret to this. I mean, Lou and Keith Richards were sort of neck and neck for years. So, you know, who's the next one to go, you know? And, mm. you know, and um, so this was somebody that was not just, you know, hey, everybody's dabbling here. Like Lou was on the ledge, you know, for a long time mm. and uh, acted it. And I think that, 
you know, when he got his life back, you know, and he looked yeah. back on all that, it, it mm-hmm. you know, he was, I think, horrified by it and embarrassed by it and would, you know, I mean, he could write about it and uh, very effectively, you know, but I think in terms of thinking about it, I think it was something he wanted to just have go away. Not I love the idea yeah. that, that he would, he came to introduce heroin when he played it as, <laughs> this is not an endorsement. Yeah, <laughs> you oh, know. Exactly. Oh, that's yeah. funny. When well, we started, when well, we started doing I... interviews for the New York album, we had, he he and I worked out a routine because we I'd always have to tell the writers no personal questions, which you know cuts out a lot of an interview, right? And so uh, mm-hmm. I I'd, I'd tell him like this: please don't ask any personal questions. But if you do ask them at the end, because they'll either hit you or walk out, so just wait. And that's... he had a signal. He he would make me sit in the interviews for the first year. And he had a signal that he would give me when he wanted me to end the interview and get the writer out of the room. And he wasn't afraid to use it. You know, he would go like, because he did not like, well, what was it like, you know, to be gay when you were young? And, you know, these people would start with questions Mm -hmm. like that, and it would just be over. I'd go like, what, how idiotic can you be? Yeah, I know. It was a a Richard, not Melt, it was Lester Bangs theory. You know, people were gunning for Lou to get him upset. I noticed yeah, that totally. about some of the press. They wanted to get Lou riled up because, you know, then they'd make their bones that way. Yeah, totally. You know, and they'd have their Lou Reed story. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Anthony, I wanted they to ask him. you something. I always thought the big play with Lou was in my era when I was designing for New York and Magic and Lost with Judith and Sylvia. I thought that was a big change for him, right, Anthony, the New York album? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was, I mean, A, it was a great record. B, it did very well. You know, I think he really enjoyed going out and playing it and there was a sense of I mean I think that period was the culmination of you know you know he had been clean for a while he'd been kind of working very uh assiduously on uh, you know on making records and I think the kind of alertness to the discovery of a larger world around him I mean that was you know that was an album about New York but it wasn't about like you know, these various kind of tucked away subcultures that he, you know, historically had written about. It was about, it was a big picture vision of the city, you know, that, you know, he had become so identified with. And I think that element, you know, um, the kind of political consciousness that he was beginning to develop, you know, a lot of these things had to do with his relationship with Sylvia as well. And uh, I think it was, you know, it was a very strong, good, uh, compelling, creative time for him. You know, it. Um, I mean, I, I feel like I have to remind people of of this often because you know, I mean, the Velvet Underground stuff in particular was so strong. You know, I mean, and, and so important that you know people say, oh, you know, Lou Reed's solo career was kind of spotty. You know, and I just go, well, let you know, let's break it down for a minute. You know, uh, you know, like in the seventies, what do you got? You know, you have. You have your Berlin, you have Rock and Roll Animal, you have Transformer, you know, you you know, you have a bunch of very important records. Then, you know, what do you have in the eighties? Well you have the blue mask and you have New York and you know, you've got new sensations and then you know, in the nineties you've got Magic and Loss, you've got you know, the Velvet Songs Underground Reunion, you know, Drella, you know, Songs yeah. for Drella. Like you know, there were you know, I mean, not everything was a hit. But, you know, as I mean, it's like what Bill was saying earlier, you know, consistently, this guy never half-stepped, you know. I mean, no. every one of those records 
was a full-on effort to make as great a record as he could make. And, you know, he often hit the mark. And there's a a funny thing of, you know, because the Velvet Underground ultimately kind of, you know, sort of altered the course of American music and became so significant that, you know, I think in a lot of ways, Lou was always in the, in the shadow of that, of his own history. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, it, 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 it doesn't allow people to, you know, understand and appreciate, like, you know, some of the great records he made. Well, and also, um, you know, Street Hassle, obviously, which Jeff played on. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, I mean, these are these are outstanding records. Yes, uh, yes. Well, I, which is quite amazing because, you know, second, you, you know, Anthony, Spencer, I don't know if you agree with me. Spence, yeah, sure. hold on one second. I'm sorry, I just need to make one really quick announcement. I wanted to say if anyone, I didn't mean to be rude here, I just need to say if anyone missed the beginning of the show, it will be available afterwards on iTunes and also on Red Velvet Media Blog Talk Radio. And again, if you'd like, call in. The number is 347-677-1036. And um, let's see. Can um, I bring up the chat to room? This now? Oh. Yes, one second. I have to do this because it's, okay. um, I'm getting this from the studio. Um, also, the chat room is not open on my end, but you can you can log in on on the other side. And uh, I just wanted to let everyone know that this show will be available afterwards. So go ahead, Spence. What did you want to say? Oh, I just wanted. To, yeah, thanks, Hal. I just wanted to bring up uh, Anthony. Um, something that Bill said too is that. In the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which I'm honored to be part of in that area, but a different area, but, um, you know, the musicians that come in, they, they have a portfolio, right, that they voted on, on, on all their albums. Lou had a lot of great cuts on each album. Some of these musicians that are in didn't have as many, right, uh, Anthony? I mean, you know what I mean? He had a lot of good cuts on a lot of his albums, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think... Uh... You know, even uh, again, you know, some some records that were uneven, you know, had some you know, really great tracks on them, and you know, there was a, you know, I think, you know, to be honest, I mean, with as far as Lou as a solo artist getting into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I mean, obviously he was in with the Velvet Underground. Um, I think I think the difficulty he had, um, you know, getting in and you know getting nominated. Uh, as a solo artist had to do as with the kind of thing that Bill was talking about. You know, I think people, you know, he, he wasn't, you know, Lou wasn't a glad hander and he wasn't a guy who was working the room, you know, not by any means. And, uh, you know, I mean, to this day, that goes a long way in the music business, you know? Yeah. Sometimes I, sometimes I would tell Lou, said, Lou, let's just, uh, we'll burn that bridge when we get to it. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. That is absolutely perfect. That's so perfect. But you know what? Of anybody I ever worked with, and I've worked with so many artists, I would put Lou at the very top as a human being who cared about other people, which shocks people when I say that. But, mm-hmm. you know, there was a Lou that was so sensitive, he went out of his way to keep people away from him. You know, if you'd walk down the streets with Lou Reed, when we first got to be friends, we'd walk around New York. Somebody would recognize him and come up to me or in Lou and start talking, and Lou would just take me by the lapel and walk away. Mm-hmm. He said, Billy B., you can't stop for everybody. And, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of people thought he was a prick, but he was less of that than anyone I've ever known. Wow. Well, he was he also, a lot of great know, I mean, he a lot of people and never got there. credit for him. Lou also was out there. I mean, he wasn't somebody that was oh. like, 
hiding and, you know, just, I mean, I ran into Lou in New York a yeah. million times. I mean, this guy was just out all the time. And, you know, and you could walk up to him in the way that you couldn't walk up to, um, you know, I don't know, Bob Dylan maybe, or, you know, just, you know, like artists, you know, who, um, you know, just kind of live a more reclusive life. I mean, Lou was, you know, in restaurants and at openings and at, you know, various kinds of political things. I mean, I used to ju- I used to see him with such regularity. It was like, it was like, uh, it was funny. I, I must say, I, I'd never lost uh, the lift that I would get. You know, it just seemed like so much a part of living in New York to encounter yeah. Lou Reed in New York was, you know, it's just like, yep, here we are. There, and this is that, about his, you know, he was New York. He yeah. was New York. It's like more than any artist that I think that ever lived. Get. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I, I think I told you about the time I walked out of my apartment on 11th Street, walked and saw Lou standing across the street, and realized he was living. <laughs> so funny. I had a corner of West and 11th, and we just, you know, we were back and forth. We didn't stay in the apartment all the time, and we went to New York, and we'd stay there for a week, and we'd come home, and we'd go back again. I had no idea he was living across the street. I walked so across funny. the street by accident. And walked past him, and as we we hadn't spoken to each other in years, and as I walked past him talking to someone else, uh, with with uh, with a friend of mine on my right, we both stuck our hands out, shook hands, nodded to each other, and we kept walking. I don't even think I slowed, but he stuck his <laughs> hand out. And I, and I remember walk, half a block away, turning to my buddy David and going, "Dude, did I just do that? I, I thought uh, I was I never going to talk to him again. Did I did?" He was, as you say, Bill, he, he, he was much more sensitive and involved and concerned about other people than anyone really knows. I, I, I've struggled with this for years. I keep saying I have no idea why Lou put me in the band. I could barely play the guitar. I mean, I, 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 don't think there was much, I don't think there was much of a competition between the two of us. And Lou mentored me in a way that I still, I was not, I didn't understand why, and it took me years to realize that that was what was going on, was that he was trying yeah. to guide me. One of, one of my favorite stories is that, that during our first major interview, on, uh, we were at the New Vic in London in whatever year it was, 77, I guess, and uh, Lou turns to me and he goes, all right, this is big, man, this is Melody Maker magazine, you're about to get interviewed, and you need to decide what your name is going to be. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, this is pre Sting, pre The Edge. What was I supposed to say? I didn't realize I could pick anything, and I, um, <laughs> I said, I said, well, Jeff Ross, and he said, that's stupid. <laughs> You're going to be known by that forever, and he just turned away from me. <laughs> Oh and my I, God! I, I thought Lou Reed, Jeff Ross. I mean, what, what, what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very funny. Um, but he really did. Yeah, he, really, he was. Everything was important to him about yeah. Uh, yeah, about anyone he cared about. You know. That's right. That's right. I mean, look what he did for Anthony, Jimmy Scott Anthony, and uh, Anthony. Just, yeah. He was so generous of spirit with both of them. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, wanted I think, to bring up something, uh, Anthony. Um, I the I had some encounters with Lou about jazz. Um, one thing I found out about him, he told me that jazz musicians don't get paid a lot. Um, he was a very devout a fan of Ornette Coleman, and yes. Judith and I gave an Ornette Coleman a Town Hall 1962 album, Shrink Wrapped at his birthday, and he freaked out. He said, Shrink Wrap, Spencer, I just bought a turntable. But one thing I learned about him, he had this really great jazz 
uh, uh, background, right? Uh, right, or, um, Anthony? He had well, certainly long-standing his. jazz interest. I mean, he had a jazz um, radio show when he was at Syracuse University when he was a, a wow. student. I mean, was playing avant-garde jazz, you know, back in the 50s. You know, there was um, a sense of uh, that music along with, like, you know, sort of doo-wop and this early R&B stuff. I mean, those, in a sense, were the two poles, like one kind of wild and avant-garde and one deeply emotional and beautiful. And you can really trace those two elements through almost all of his work. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. You know, that's really – I have a question here. Um, you know, towards towards when he, you know, re-kind of – formulated himself and, and rebranded himself and started doing Tai Chi and started, you know, living a healthier lifestyle. Um, what was uh, everybody's take on that? How did everyone feel about that? Because I know he was really supporting himself on that, the people that were around him were. Um, did you talk to anybody or do I, any of you um, have any memories of that time? Yeah, I mean, he even once in the backseat of a, a limo, he tried to teach me Tai Chi, which I just didn't feel. Yeah, didn't really? That's great. You know, di- different moves. But he, uh, you know, I think everybody was really happy for him. I, I, I never got a sense of doing uh, press with him or anything like in the later years. Like, you know, where's the heroin, Lou? Where's, yeah. you know, where's the gay guy in, in leather panties? You know, he nobody went back there and tried to bait him about changing. I think, I really and truly think everybody was, glad that he was alive because there, the there weren't many there weren't many heroes from the 60s in the 90s mm-hmm. and even the 2000s that had stood their ground in such a uh, really individualistic way as Lou. I mean, and I think um, Lou. there was a kind of winnowing out of his crowd I think also around that time I think you know like a lot of people who you know had you know serious drug problems you know I think you know some people you know, I mean, you either cleaned up or you got out, you know, I mean. And then AIDS oh, no, hit, totally. remember, Anthony? What's that? AIDS hit, and Lou, Lou lost so many friends to AIDS when it hit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he you, t- know, he told thing, me, he, you know, he told me something interesting once. He, when we first got to know each other, you know, in Halloween Parade was on the New York yes. record. We were listening together one time, and he, and you know what he said, man? He looked at me and said, I got out just in time. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. And I just went like, whoa, man. Yeah, that that's heavy. intense. <laughs> that's intense. You know. It's really interesting to hear about people's lifestyle changes and stuff like that, and it's 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 really good that he felt like he had that second chance. So what I'd like to do is maybe talk a little bit about his second chance and the music that he did after that. Um, can you guys talk a little bit about that? Anthony, did you uh, talk to some people that were part of that? Well, sure, and then, you know, I mean, I listened to it, <laughs> you know, and uh, I yeah. think that, you know, the, um, I, you know, I think it was, you know, a little bit of what I was saying before. I mean, I think that, you know, he developed a kind of larger view, you know. I mean, you know, he could occasionally dip back into these, uh, you know, the kind of netherworld of New York that, uh, you know, he loved writing about, you know, very early on and and, and chronicled as really I don't know, maybe, you know, William Burroughs or maybe Hubert Selby, you know, are, are, you know, you could argue about this, but, you know, Lou is at or near the top of people who brought that forward in a, in a very compelling way. 
but then later on, I mean, I think his writing, you know, he took, he began writing about subjects other than himself and other than, you know, the experiences of his own life and this, you know, kind of shadow world. And so, you know, an album sure. like, again, like New York is about, you know, a big city going through a big crisis. And, I w- um, I've you know, a little the, feedback here. I don't mean to interrupt you, but who's outside on, on a phone? One of you? On a um, headpiece? Uh, no. Not no? me. Nope. <laughs> Somebody, somebody's on a headpiece. I'm hearing it. We're interesting. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, Anthony, because that was really important. But there was a little feedback yep. there, and it, and it sounded like somebody was moving around. But that's all good. Yeah, it stopped, man. Yep. Well, it's a little it's a little bit there again, but it's okay. Um, and let's not forget the song on, uh, on Set the Twilight Reeling from 95. Yes. There's a song on that album that Lou insisted be the first single on that album, which you know, was one more nail in the coffin at Warner Brothers, and that song was called Sex with Your Parents. Yes. <laughs> and, 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 you know, they, nobody could talk him out of it. You know, and I think that was Lou's way of, of really seeing who was with him. You know, who's going to stand with me on this and not, you know, Ben. And that was the beginning of the end of his real relationship with people at Warner Brothers because it, it was the first single, and, of course, you know, it killed the album completely. And there was, you know, that was a, a way of, like, I mean, going through something that's very much of this moment. Jim, and I think he was trying to make a point about, you know, a certain type of right-wing Republican hypocrisy in that song. Right. And, uh, you know, I think, again, you know, it's obviously a provocative title, but it had a very political and social uh, context that was meant to address larger issues in the culture. And, and of course, right. you know, he did songs for Drello about, um, you know, about Andy Warhol. He did, you know, Magic and Loss was just in part about Doc Pomus. You know, there was... You know, these he began to search for subjects that um, weren't just himself and his own experience. And I think that breadth of a larger vision is, you know, what um, I associate with that period of, um, you know, just having the kind of focus that um, getting clean brings you. Oh, yeah, right. no, Absolutely. I know, and I, and I think that's really brave of uh, for Lou to say that to also, um, you know, other people that he's around. Because I know that he was very adamant about living a healthy lifestyle and trying to, you know, move into that circle. Because I think well, he was even afraid. his so, producer Hal Wilner, you know, uh-huh. I mean, went through a period, you know, where Hal got as close to him mm-hmm. as really anybody, um, and eventually, but. You know, at one point, you know, Lou was interested in working with him, and as as Hal told me, he goes, well, you know, and I still needed to go through some adventures, and Lou just said to him, man, you know, like, I I just can't be around you. Like, you need to yeah. work out your problems, so and when down. you do, so he yeah, 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 when you do, That's good. please come back because you know I value you mm. as a friend and I value you as a colleague, but I I can't I can't do this. I know what you're up to, and I, yeah, I don't want mm. no part of it. And you know, he was you know wow. very clear about that, and that was part. You know, he wanted to save himself too. You know, yeah. Mhm. That's important. That that's really cool that he made healthy boundaries. You know, that he yeah. set healthy boundaries with people. Um. Do you know? Did you ever talk to Lori at all? Any in, in any of this book that you? Together well, here. I think uh, 
Uh, the short answer would be no. I mean, I have interviewed Lori in the past, and I was around her mm-hmm. with Lou, you know, like a number of times. Um, mm-hmm. I think her sense is, uh, you know, look, Lou led a complicated life, and I don't think she wanted to be in the situation of seeming like she was authorizing something that she wasn't authorizing. So that, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I was writing the book I was going to write. I mean, Lori had no control over it. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, uh, you know, she kind of was benignly not involved. I mean, anybody who went to her and said, you know, uh, I've been approached about, you know, Hal Wilner or Lenny Kay or, um, you know, Lou's sister or, you know, any of the other people, you know, that I spoke to who knew her and were close to her, you know, she would say, mm-hmm. yeah, sure. You know, if you if you would like to talk to him, please, you know, go ahead and do it. Um, but I think she wants, you know, she's doing, you know, and has done her own Lou Reed related stuff. And I think, uh, you know, she kind of didn't want to be responsible for everything that was in a book that she wasn't in charge of everything that was in. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I get that. It's the memories to herself. I kind of said that about Lori, you know, she had such a incredible life with Lou. And I, I think she just kind of wants to keep so much of that, just to herself, and she's a very private person too, as public as she is. Yes. And these these, these mm-hmm. most stars, you know, even the ones you think you really know, when they're alone, you know, they love being alone, <laughs> and they love the fact that mm-hmm. everybody's not watching them all the time. Mm-hmm. But you know, I mean, she's involved in the you know this Velvet Underground documentary that Todd Haynes is going to be directing. Uh, you know, obviously she she um, you know. Donated all of like you know Lou's archive to the New York Public Library. There's a Velvet Underground oh, wow. archive at at Cornell University that, um, uh, nice. you know. So I think like things where you know she has kind of a hand in it. I think mm-hmm. she's um, you know I think she's open to taking steps and is you know she's also got her own career. <laughs> you know that uh, mm-hmm. you know she's not just the sort of you know not not that being the you know, curator of, of Lou's career is like a small job, but, you know, she's got her own work that she's, you know, very actively doing. So, you know, I, I, um, you know, if she, if she, you know, kind of consented to every Lou Reed request that came in, she'd be doing nothing else but that. Oh, yeah. sure. And then what about Sylvia Spencer? What do you, what, how Sylvia, what's Sylvia's take on all this that with your own personal relationship with Sylvia Reed. Sylvia was interesting because um, uh, actually I was led on to Sylvia through Waring Abbott, uh, Anthony, who you know, uh, who shot uh, Lou for the New York album, and uh, Waring turned us on to Sylvia and Lou, and Lou, Sylvia came up to the studio, and the thing that uh, I didn't realize is how creative she is and how we Judith and I and her work together the chemistry is unreal to this day and um and and that she was beyond she always said to me you know everybody thinks they just treat her as a wife of Lou Reed but she goes beyond that obviously for everybody knows she's a great person and she's very creative so Lou let her hold the reins to the creative area which really, and I learned something uh, as I've learned people act out what you do, is that 
Lou never changed anything that we all did. Not one thing on Magic and Loss or New York album or the Velvet Underground 93 tour or the box set, Peel Up Banana box set. Nothing was changed. It was amazing. Nothing was ever changed. And we did our creative work, and Sylvia was a great part of that. And um, that was really interesting uh, to uh, in my life, you know, being... Uh, uh, with Sylvia and how she was as a person, and today she, she's a great person, you know. I mean, but um, she, uh, Lou, let her uh, have the reins on creative, you know. And uh, and so, she managed him. It's like I know yeah. when I started working on New York. I mean, I, the first time I went to their house up on West End Avenue, yeah. you know, really the whole Lou Reed organization was Sylvia, Lou, a telephone, and a fax machine. <laughs> we were walking around New York. Oh, wow. you know, she was the manager. She did everything for Lou yeah. with the yeah. label. One time Lou and I were walking around New York and he saw a little pile of dog poop. And he said, You see that? I go, Yep. And he goes like think of whatever is less than that and that's most managers. <laughs> uh, wow. Really? He, you know, he had he had some bad and Anthony can talk to this, some bad things happen with some of his former managers. Yeah, oh, yeah, I mean, there were many, that. many lawsuits. He, you know, was battling uh, legal issues for many years, years, and that was again something that you know all got resolved. You know, just as uh, you know, as the '80s were beginning, and he got clean, and there was a, you know, he cleaned up all of that aspect of his life as well, because that was, you know, really kind of dragging him down. Mm. Wow! Really? Okay. That's interesting. I, I, uh, um, you know, that's cool. I was just going to add, Holly, that that, uh, that no, the it. thing that precipitated the demise of my relationship with Lou was um, my behavior. I clearly, uh, mm-hmm. uh, basically, Lou was having serious financial problems, at, and when we came back from that European tour, that nobody was aware of but Lou and Rachel, perhaps. But. Uh, um, and with the impunity of youth, uh, I was demanding money that I had not been paid yet. And by the time it got back to Lou, I think it just I, – I, I, at the time, I thought he just got pissed at me. But now I realize it must have tweaked a very, very sad place in him and a very difficult emotional place because he was broke and we had just come off yep. a European mm-hmm. tour. In fact, we had a riot, and I wonder to this day who paid for all that gear. We had a riot in Aarhus, Denmark. That dis- where they destroyed every single piece of equipment we had, with the exception of our guitars, because we got them. The roadies grabbed them off the stage. Um, oh, you're kidding! A- no, I still have a symbol that I sent home in a box that was folded in half by a <laughs> light tree. The lighting tower what? that collapsed <laughs> was knocked down onto the stage. Uh, you know, full Steinway. You know, the, the, a concert Steinway Grand, and every piece of equipment we had was destroyed, and we had more gear delivered a couple of days later. And I wonder to the, just exactly how broke Lou was when we got done with those bottom line shows. Um, you know, uh, but I, I know it pervaded quite a quite a period of his of his his you know immediate future. And to this day, I regret being such an ass. <laughs> it's like uh, really. Because oh. <laughs> we've all had financial problems, and the last thing you need is somebody you're helping coming to you and reaching into your pocket and like poking you because you don't have anything in there. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's a great. Like, there's, I, I, I understand that one. Yeah. It's wow. a great story. Uh, Lou wrote liner notes for the reissue of Coney Island Baby, 
And Lou tells a story mm-hmm. where at one point before they made that record, he had nothing. He said he owed the roadies money, so they took his guitar. So he didn't even have a guitar. Yeah. He had zero. Wow. And there really? Was, there was one oh guy, I don't know if it was the president, the president or one of the major people at RCA, his label at the time, came to him and said, look, Lou, I'll buy you a guitar. RCA will buy you a guitar if you promise mm-hmm. to write some rock and roll songs. And he got the guitar, and he wrote the whole Coney Island Baby album, which I think is one of the very best records ever made. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great album. Lou or anybody. And wow. Think of that. Lou, did, Lou Reed did not own a guitar, but he, owned, he had no furniture. He had nothing. Mm. But, you know, it didn't really change him, you know. He was, like I said, he was fearless in that. I think he knew inside him he had everything he needed to sort of pull himself out of every dire circumstance he ever got himself into. He didn't have any sponsors at the time that were sponsoring no. his tour or anything. You're kidding. I don't think I don't think people did that at the time. You know, no. it was like oh, uh, okay. Because I was gonna say, I mean, like, like now it's like I can call Dean Markley or whatever. Wow, that's crazy. That's yep. that's crazy. So no sponsorship where people, you know, you could do signatures for. You know, oh, he uses my guitar, my guitar strings, my this, my that. Well, the roadies just took the equipment. Well, they were owed money. He, he owed <laughs> yeah, money from the no, tour. I so they said, well, well, we'll just take the guitars and sell them or keep them or whatever. Oh, <laughs> uh, God. But remember that? that remember that? Lou was not completely trusting Hollywood with other people's equipment. Uh, we had a. Uh, wherever oh we traveled, gosh. people were always rushing to, you know, the music stores and so forth. Everybody was rushing to to meet Lou at the gig, yeah. and there was a an incident in uh, Belgium. In Belgium, we went to a uh, went to a music store, and Lou decided he wanted this new L6 guitar, which had a, a six position switch on it, uh, <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, he wanted to know how it worked. And we <laughs> we took him back the to the hotel toy. in the afternoon. And the two of us sat in the room, in the hotel room, and with screwdrivers and pliers and dismantled these guitars to try to figure out. Lou was always fascinated by technology. You know, I mean, we had the latest, greatest everything. We went to the Ewer factory in Germany, and he bought us all new cassette recorders, and we got headphones, and we got. But uh, I, I suspect that this particular. Uh, uh, Enterprise was doomed from the beginning. We got to the gig, and we were hours late. We were like an hour or something late to this gig, and the promoter had been keeping everybody calm. Uh, and uh, uh, Lou returned the rather rather perfunctorily returned the guitars in pieces. <laughs> it was all torn up. Music store owner. Uh, I'll never forget that. They had a guy's face was just like, "What?" Hey, Anthony, yeah, I want to ask you a question. Uh, yeah. uh, John Cale and Lou had a very volatile relationship, right, Anthony? Yeah. yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I think, you know, I mean, to my mind, uh, you know, John Cale was as significant a member of the Velvet Underground as Lou Reed. And they, you know, Cale was extremely influential in kind of creating the musical soundscapes that accompanied Lou's lyrics, you know, for the first two Velvet Underground records, which, you know, are uh, certainly the first one is an absolute classic, and, the, you know, the second one is merely a classic. Uh, but, you know, they're both extremely important and tremendously influential. But, you know, I think Lou wanted the Velvet Underground to move in a direction where they could be a successful rock and roll band. He didn't see uh, John Cale as being part of that vision and, 
you know, after a while, I mean, I think Lou began to experience the Velvets as his band. And, you know, that um, played itself out again, I think, when the Velvet Underground got back together in the early 90s. And I think, you know, Lou, I think, greatly admired John Cale. You know, on the other hand, um, you know, John Cale was also an, you know, an established and very significant artist in his own light, in his own right. He didn't like to be bossed around. And Lou mm-hmm. didn't like having his ideas. Um, you know, Lou was used to doing what he wanted to do. And so having his ideas challenged or having you know, uh, a person of a kind of equal stature along with him, I think, uh, was kind of unsettling to him. And so they uh, they butted heads and, uh, you know, they, some great work came out of it. But it was, you know, you, know, you wonder if, uh, you know, if they'd managed to get along, what, uh, you know, what really might have transpired. Oh, right. Yeah, you're right. Wow. I have to tell you a funny thing that Sterling Morrison told me, because, you know, Sterling, Lou got Sterling to go to Kale's apartment and fire him. Yeah, and uh, Lou wouldn't Lou wouldn't do it, so Sterling went. And I said, well, "Why did Lou want to get rid of uh, Kale?" He said, "Well, you know." And Sterling was really funny in the way he looked at everything. He said, "Well, you know, he married Betsy Johnson, and everybody was talking about how well John Kale was dressing, and Lou got jealous." <laughs> <laughs> you and know, I think you in that. Kale writes about that in his uh, autobiography. I mean, he did a really interesting really? book called "Yeah, What's Welsh for Zen" is the name well, of the book. book, and. Um, yeah, he mentions that, you know, because of Betsy Johnson, who was just beginning to be a thing, you know, Kale was getting a lot of attention in, you know, a world that was, you know, kind of uh, ancillary to the Velvet Underground, but connected to it. And, yeah, I mean, that would have gotten under loose skin. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> Plus, you know, like you said, Anthony, I think it was Lou always envisioned the Velvet Underground as his band. And it yeah. really was. I mean, as much it would never have been what it was without John. It was the the meeting of those two minds. I think that made the music really what it was. It would not have been as avant garde by any stretch without John. But at the end of the day, you know, there was a period where Lou was sharing songwriting credits with the whole band, as we all remember. Yeah. And a lot of and that all got straightened out back to like almost everything was written by Lou Reed. Yeah, and that's that's just the way he looked at it, and I think right. you know what I think he was right. It was his band. It really was. Mm. Well, it could have, you know there was that's a basic thing of you know Lou writing the songs, and that you know that's obviously extremely important. You know, I wanted to ask you um, besides, you know, with with the tours that everybody has worked on and gone on, and Anthony, you interviewing both of. These fine gentlemen. Um, <laughs> I would ask you: Was there anything besides that really? That's funny. That's not really funny, but kind of that kind of a little trivia about them taking everything and the cassettes. You want to share any other stories that you guys experienced on the road that maybe our listeners might find a little uh, a little fun, a little trivia that maybe you would like. You know that Anthony hasn't written about, or maybe it's something you haven't heard about. You know, there's some things that I shared with Lou on the road that really I think he would want me to keep quiet. Not that there's you know risque okay. or anything really, but Lou was a very private sure. person. I know when Anthony interviewed me, remember Anthony? You know, there were some things I could say, but I couldn't go all the way because you know I just I, I respect what Lou asked of me when he was alive, so I couldn't really 
change that after he passed. But it was just, you know, like a lot of personal, really cool, fun things that we all did. I always liked the fact that his uh, hotel name when he would register was Ray Chandler because he loved Ray Chandler so much. Really? Really? That's pretty good. He used on the road. Ray Chandler. That's pretty cool. That is really cool. Really? He told me some stuff about William Burroughs and some of the – Sterling introduced me to William Burroughs in the 70s, and uh, Lou had a lot of things to say about William Burroughs and Ginsburg and that whole crowd because that's who he looked up to. But then he actually lived Mm -hmm. among it, and there's kind of crazy stuff that happened that probably should remain uh, silent, shall we say. (laughs) Mm-hmm. No, that's all good. You know, it's always yeah. good to hold him in high regard. But um, yeah. you know, you have some fun. No, you guys have some fun times there that I'm sure that you've in, all experienced. In 25 you know? years, the only even remotely negative thing Lou Reed ever said to me. He never was mean to me. He never said any. Lou's number one attribute that he admired was loyalty. If you were loyal to Lou, and if you weren't, you were toast. But if you were loyal to mm-hmm. Lou, and he was loyal to me, but I remember once I told a funny story. I thought it was funny about an interview that asked him some really stupid questions and how Lou kind of cut the guy off and kind of insulted him in a really creative way. And the next day at the mm-hmm. hotel, Lou said, come here. He goes, like, don't ever tell anybody anything about things that have happened. <laughs> wow. And uh, I knew exactly what he was talking about. Cause, you know, I was at a dinner of about five people, and I told this story, and Everybody laughed, and I thought Lou laughed, but boy, he, it's, it would, things would stick in Lou's craw until he got it out of him. Jeff, you know that. If something I do. bothered I do. him, he was going to let you know. It might not be right away, but you were, you know, I saw him to do it to so many people. He would just cut them up, you know, from something a week ago or a year ago, whatever. My post- uh, Lou Reed band relationship with Lou missed uh, it. It just was. It just <laughs> it was. It wasn't a good relationship. I mean, basically, any time I walked into a, you know, I had a band called Teaser at the time, and uh, uh, you know, we were we were doing the underground routine like everybody else in New York, and I was avoiding the Lou Reed credit if I could, um, like an idiot, and. Uh, um, and Lou did his level best to see that I, I didn't work. It came from something he had said to me the year before. Whoa. That to me, Whoa. he said, well, I didn't, I, I don't know how long it lasted because I probably was my own worst enemy, but the, 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 he, he, did, he did do his level best to keep me from ma- being able to use any of the contacts or connections that I made while playing with him. And, uh, um, and he had told me that. He, he, he said that straight up. He sat me down in... Uh, uh, in in London before we're, we were in a hotel, We've been rehearsing for a couple of weeks uh, at Shepherd and Studios, and we were about to go off to Sweden for the first gig of that tour. And uh, I got a call from Fonfara, and uh, he said, "You better come down to the downstairs right now." And got down to the bar at two o'clock in the morning. I you know, said, "Mike, I'm asleep. Who wants to see you now?" And I got down to the bar, and uh, the two of them are sitting. There's no real bar. It's just. They've 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 just helped themselves to the booze, and um, and they've got an empty bottle of Glenfiddich or so. I can never remember which one it was. They had a full bottle of something and an empty bottle of something with Glenfiddich and Glen Levitt on the table. I had no idea what those were. Lou pours me a shot and he says, "Drink this." And he's got my tickets, which were probably an inch <laughs> thick stack of of, of yeah. paper tickets, uh, which anyone. 
close to my age might remember. I'm not impugning anyone. Um, and uh, he slaps him on the table, and he goes, and Funfair is looking awfully sheepish at this point. Um, and <laughs> he says, all right, we're going tomorrow to stock. We're going tomorrow to Sweden. I need to know right now. Can you do this? Because if you can't, I'll send you home. It's cool. It's all right. We're good. But... You screw me up. You'll never work in this business again. <laughs> Are you? And serious? I was like, Wow. And I, yeah, absolutely. No, he was dead serious. And I, and Fonfair is like, I didn't say anything. I don't know what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> you know, these guys were jazz musicians, and I was every bit a punk guitar player. You know, so uh, yeah. there, there wasn't a lot of initial respect uh, for for <laughs> losing to a the band. So I don't know what Mike had said to him, but there must have been some indication that I was unable to play jazz or something. And, and Lou said this to me, and I, you know, of course I didn't even, I didn't take it seriously. I was like, oh, come on, Lou, you know I can do this. This is easy. You know, I'm not easy, but I've got my notes, and yeah. listen, let me just, you know, can I just go back to sleep? And made me down this shot. I was not a whiskey drinker. This was not my last experience with them. Uh, with forced imbibing on that tour, um, but they, uh, you know, they sent me up to the room and it was fine. And the next night we went out and we got to Sweden and I immediately started playing the wrong song. First song up, wrong song. <laughs> Fortunately, both oh, wow. songs were in E. I think I told you this, Anthony. I played I Believe yeah. in Love and they were. I mean, I, I'm playing Sweet Jane, which is the last song, and they're playing I Believe in Love, which is the first song. And I look over at Fonfair, and he's like, yeah, cool, counterpoint, no, <laughs> or whatever he's thinking. But, uh, you know, I didn't get fired. Um, oh, that's, so, uh, that's amazing. So, yeah, uh, that's, there, there, Holly, there's, there's something you didn't know about. <laughs> that's funny. funny. That is funny. You know, I wanted to say something that I remembered from our first interview, Anthony, um, when Sylvia was talking and Spencer, they were talking about the packaging they did for the – few albums that Spencer worked with Sylvia and Judith on and uh, it was that Lou had was a perfectionist they said um, and that if you if he did if you didn't have the best of something it wasn't good enough is that do you remember that conversation guys yeah sure yeah, when we were talking yeah, about that I do I yeah so that's true I mean he was really he was very visual. I mean, he's friends with Julian Schnabel, right, Anthony? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, he started with he started with Warhol. You know, that was That's the thing that, that really story. yeah, right, he shaped exactly. him. Yeah, so he knew. Wow, there's just so many stories. I mean, Anthony, are you? I want to ask you, Anthony, what are you currently working on right now besides your music? <laughs> A follow up? Remember, we talked you were going to you were doing another book. I think. Um, no, I'm trying to, you know, I'm I'm still, I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, I'm still kind of very actively promoting the Lou book, and it's been a little bit mm-hmm. difficult getting my head out of Lou world. But, um, <laughs> you know, I'm sure. meeting with my agent next week, and we'll be talking about some things, and, you know, nothing is, uh, you know, I'm doing some writing. I'm doing a project for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and I'm doing... Uh, you know, another, uh, you know, a book chapter for something else, the collection of stuff that, you know, somebody's putting together. But I, I don't have any, uh, and I'm teaching. I mean, I'm teaching a Beatles seminar right now at the University of Pennsylvania. Oh, uh, really? And, uh, you know, so how's that busy. going? It's great. How's that going? <laughs> it's really great. Seminar. Yeah, it's been like wow. 
fantastic. You go from the Beatles, to, from Lou Reed to the Beatles. Wow. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> didn't Brian Epstein want to manage the Velvet Underground for a period? At one point, that was something that, uh, yeah, he wow. was talking about. He met with Lou. Mm. You know, unfortunately, he died before any of that could come to fruition. Yeah. But. Let me tell one last Lou story just to show you Lou's true oh, heart. Oh, no, go. And yeah. And then I, then I have to leave. But in 2004, Edgar Bronfman bought Warner Music. And, of course, the first thing new owners do is fire as many people as possible. So they mm-hmm. fired about twenty, uh, about somewhere between two and 300 people at Warner Brothers Records worldwide. And, of course, I was mm-hmm. one of them. I was in my 50s by then. And uh, so, you know, I did another week, and I was getting ready to leave. I was actually in New York with Neil Young working with Neil. And I get a call from the Warner chairman. He goes, like, well, Bill, do you do you want to stay? And I said, of course I want to stay. You know, I I never wanted to leave. He said, okay, we'll just keep working Aww. here. And and I didn't find out till a year later. Cal Wilner told me that Lou, when he found out I had been let go in '04, had written a letter to the chairman of Warner Brothers Records and said, you know, how can you fire this guy? <laughs> he likes music. Wow. So Lou got wow. me my job back, and you know, he wow. didn't have to do that. Wow. He did not have to do that. And that, but that's what I I say. When I say, I mean, when I say oh, how generous he was for other people. And you know yeah. what? Lou never told me that he did that. Wow. And that, oh, that's the mark of a true. How Wilner told me. How did you find after out? After Lou died. Oh, wow. Oh, oh, it, wow. It was a memorial at Lou's apartment. You know, they, they had kind of like 49 days after he physically died, his spirits left earth, according mm-hmm. to some of their beliefs. And so they had a memorial at the apartment he and Laurie shared on the 11th. And uh, Hal said, did you know that happened? He goes, no. I said, I'd never heard that. He goes, well, I saw the letter. And uh, you should ask the people. Oh, wow. That's all. How did you at that feel? That's also, I, I, talked to, I talked to Lou's sister. Oh, I was overwhelmed, but guess what? I was not surprised. Because, yeah. you know, that's something. Wow. If you had Lou's back, he had your back. He was almost like, you know, it was almost like the mafia of the Army. Like, yeah, right. You're either with me or we're going to grind you to mulch. <laughs> well, Anthony, remember the book signing? Remember the book signing at uh, John Barbados, the Transformer book signing before? Uh, oh, I know the story. I mean, I wasn't there, but I think we talked about that with it was Mick like, Rock. Well, it was that. Transformer, the time. Transformer book signing. Yeah. Mick, uh, Mick Rock, and uh, I was there. Lou was there, and something I want to tell you, Bill. As they were going through this discussion at John Varvatos on the book signing, and shortly before, by the way, Lou passed away, and I met him, thank God, um, he, someone in the audience was, like, talking. And Lou got up from this chair and said, just about told him to shut up. And it was a, you couldn't hear oh, a pin drop after that. You couldn't hear a pin drop. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was Lou, man. Yeah, it was Lou. <laughs> Hey, the last time I saw Lou was at a uh, clearly. Can you guys hear yes. me clearly? Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just checking my yeah. microphone. Okay. okay. What were you saying now? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. The last you. time I saw Lou live, he was doing a lecture at uh, Cal State Long Beach College, pretty much based on metal machine music. But, you know, the, a lecture, and I think Bob Ezrin was the moderator, and immediately you know, Lou got off into cables and amps and all total gear stuff, and you know, the audience was not interested in that. They wanted to hear about Lou's records and the Velvets and everything. So after about 30 minutes of cable talk, some guy yelled out from the audience, can't you talk about something else? And oh, Lou, without missing oh, no. a beat, said, get that MF out of here and give him his money back. 
And like the usher came and kicked the guy out. Are you serious? Wow. wow. I'm serious. I mean, but that that you all y'all who know Lou know he's going to talk about what he wants to talk about. And at the time, right. it's cables, mm-hmm. it's cables. That's it. Well, well that yeah. that riot I referred to in Aarhus, but that didn't start by itself. Someone threw a bottle what? at the stage. You know, the promoter was selling beer in bottles, which is ridiculous. But so someone threw a bottle at the stage. And it, and and Lou, when Lou and I were sitting on the front of the stage, I can't I think we were doing. I've, I've tried to figure this out. I think we were doing Pale Blue Eyes. But we uh, uh, so it's just acoustic guitar and Lou, and this bottle comes whizzing past his head and bangs into the drums. And Lou stood up. Oh no! He, and he cursed out the audience. And he said, "If anybody does anything like that again, one more bottle. I want that guy's head. Yeah, I think he said something like, I want that guy's head on a spit.'" You know, or I'm not doing any, or we're off. You know, we're not doing anything more. And the promoter, we're all standing around nervously, and the promoter walks over to the microphone, <laughs> and he translates everything. <laughs> and, oh, no. and, the, and the audience oh, went, funny. I don't know, I mean, Lou was so vitriolic, and the tr- promoter was such an idiot, and the next thing you know, we had a riot. Hell I mean, and place. they destroyed yeah. everything. There's nothing more dangerous than drunken Dutch. I'm sorry. <laughs> Incredible. Well, it was like that at the Wiltern when we recorded the uh, Animal Serenade live album. That was really Lou's last album before Metallica's album. But uh, there was a guy in the front, you know, talking and yelling out, rock and roll, rock and roll. And Lou just finally had enough, screamed at the guy, had his stop the show, had his tour manager wade into the audience in the front of the, right in front of the stage, <laughs> grab the guy around the neck and drag him out. And then the next song was the next song was Anthony's version of Candy Says, you know, a beautiful, just gorgeous song. And at the, if you listen closely to that recording, at the end of the uh, version of Candy Says that Anthony sings, you can hear him say, "Thank you, Lou." And it was because Lou had had that guy dragged out before he wow. sang Candy Says. <laughs> Incredible. I mean, that's Lou, though. He's not going to put up with that stuff. I, I just, just want to—I just want to give a word of unsolicited advice to anybody listening out there. I know we're all old enough to have learned this lesson, but do not take any guidance from Lou's behavior. Don't act like Lou, because if you're not Lou Reed, yeah. you're not getting away with it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I'm speaking from some experience, by the way. So. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, fellas, I have to run, and thank you for having me. And uh. Best of luck, and Anthony, I'll see you next time you're out here. Yeah, Bill, thank you so much, man. Hey, thanks, Such Bill. It's a pleasure to hear your voice. Yeah, always. I'll see you all soon. Thank you so much uh, nice for you, being Bill. on the show and calling yeah, in. And uh, I think we're going to be doing a show with you very shortly, aren't we, Spencer? Uh, yes, I hope so. Smithsonian's yeah. book. Yeah. In it. Smithsonian's book, <laughs> yeah. Bill. Yeah. I'm really excited well, about thank you, that, and, uh, So look forward to having forever you back because you're know? really fun. Okay. Uh, well, I, you have a and beautiful I love Lou. I'm just honored to be on it. You too. Bye-bye. Hey, take care. Thank you. So for us, it's, for all of us that are left here listening and <laughs> talking, yeah, wow, what a great guy he is. Yeah, that's really fun. Um, so, Anthony, I was going to say to you really quickly, um, let's talk about uh, how – your mu- has your music been influenced by any of what you've written and by you know, I'm not really a musician. Music? I am just a writer. I mean, I you know I sang live mm-hmm. for that Lou Reed thing just because it was fun and I can mm-hmm. actually right. sing. But I'm not in a band or a musician. I've never written a song, and so I don't perform at all. Other than that, okay. 
Other than that, that stealing wow. of Elsa's thunder, you outshone us. You outshined us all. That <laughs> <laughs> well, was fun. I, I mean, I, you know, when you have uh, support like that, it, it was pretty easy. Uh, Anthony, as I was here, as I was listening to you, I was thinking, mm, maybe we should do. Maybe we could do you, me, Suzanne, Richard. We could get together, put the band back together, so to speak, <laughs> and uh, and do uh, a a a Lou either a Lou Reed version of Beatles songs or oh, Beatles God. version of Lou Reed songs. <laughs> oh yeah, I don't know. Oh my God! I, I was with everything up until that. that. <laughs> the context was, uh, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, that might be that might be tricky. The the rest of it though, you know the the. Yeah, you know, reigniting the collaboration. That sounds hey, listen, exciting. Listen, I want to say this. I, I'm going to take. I'm going to take advantage of our, our being on the phone together right now. Sorry, Holly. Sorry, sorry Spencer. No, anytime, don't worry. Anthony. Okay. Anytime, man. I've had that was more fun than I, I I've had playing Lou Reed songs <laughs> since. It was, really, uh, it was very moving for me. I mean, it was such a good night, and I think uh, the audience really enjoyed it, and uh, oh, yeah. it was a great launch for the book. It was. Oh, and Suzanne and Richard were wonderful, and you and and really uh, for everything that's in the book, and it's a fantastic book, really. Uh, I, I mean, I, I mean that. Uh, you know, I've done I've done others, and this it's just it's 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 still it's 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 so comprehensive and it's so great, and for music aficionados for people who are actually interested in the minutiae in the cables you know and 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 so forth it's all there it's all there uh you did such a great job and i'm really thrilled that i i got to be part of it thank you very much thank you you were you were a great part of it um well i also um unfortunately have to be leaving uh and uh but you know i had a fantastic time i mean this was you know, a great conversation, and I I totally appreciate it. And uh, are you uh, thank kidding? You so much. We were so looking forward to this, and uh, yeah. we are gonna end, we're gonna end the show. I'm sorry, guys, about the music. Um, there is a little snafu with the studio. It's not on my end. Um, they're revamping, I guess, the servers. So I apologize that we didn't have any music, but. By next I've, time, we will be all up and running. I've been assured, so we'll be okay. And, uh, I want to put one thing. I want to say one thing to Anthony. Anthony, thank you so much for putting Judith and I in the books. A big thing in our life, and it was an honor because of just who you are as a writer. And I just want to tell you that. Thank you very oh, much. Oh no, that's so thoughtful of you to say. And it was a pleasure speaking with you. And of course, you're part of the story, so you had to be in there. Thank and, you. Uh, you know that was uh, that was a lovely part, and um, you know obviously you know your friendship with Sylvia. You know she also you know did a great interview for the book, and um, so yeah, really. it was uh, you know everybody. I mean Jeff and Bill. I mean the voices that have been on here are um, such an important part of what the book you know turned out to be. So I mean I'm very grateful. Well, Anthony, thank you for including me and giving me uh, a much-needed opportunity to revisit a lot of very, very important formative stuff. And, and just, it's, uh, it's, it's always a great pleasure. You call me when you're ready to sing again. And uh, Holly. <laughs> man, we'll do a gig up, in, uh, up around your way, man. We'll go up to. Hey, listen, uh... You come on up here, or, hey, let's just, just, I'll swing by. You can jump in the car on the way to Nashville next time. We'll just do something <laughs> Excellent. Hi, uh, thanks so much for having me, Spencer. Great to love talk you, to you Jeff. again. Holly, lovely you to meet you. Show. 
Yeah, Spencer and love Holly, thank you, you both so Have much. Have a beautiful weekend, We love guys. you. Yes. Holly and I love you. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye Have now. a beautiful weekend. Thank you. you too. Rock and roll. So, Spencer, you and I are ending the show today. That was awesome. Holly. And I wanted to thank everyone for being um, on the show, and uh, thank you for bringing everyone here. And I wanted to say it is Friday, guys. Please don't drink and drive. And uh, with that, I think we're about ready to end our show because uh, we have like uh, I think two minutes left, so we're right on we're right on time. But next week, um, if all goes well, we are scheduled Wednesday again um, for a special show with Ricky Bird, who is going to be talking about his new release. And then next Friday, we have I believe the film that you were talking about that we were going to be in, um, reviewing and talking yeah, American to the... Valhalla. Yeah, American mm-hmm. Valhalla with uh, the famous, uh, which Josh told me, uh, talking to Iggy Pop, the great film, Holly. Okay. All right, great. So we are now at 90 seconds. So with that, I want to thank everyone for listening. And uh, thank you, Spencer, and everyone have a great weekend. And, uh, again, don't drink and drive, guys. Thank Thank you, you, Spencer. Okay. Thank you, Holly. Bye, guys. See you next week. Bye, guys. Next Wednesday, (laughs) and look for the announcements if we're going to be having Ricky Bird on. Okay? Yeah. Bye. Bye. Thank you.